You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Your Brain on Facts back catalog. I'm your host, Moxie Labouche. A little bit of context before the episode begins. For these early episodes, I was still learning to edit the audio. Some of them sound bad because I didn't edit enough, and then some sound worse because I edited too much. Please take the audio quality with a grain of salt and understand that it was growing pains. And now, our feature presentation. Flipping through an old family photo album serves not only as a timeline of one's recent ancestry, but also the progression of photographic technology. Grandma's photos are all black and white. Mom's childhood snapshots have an overall bluish tint, though things go fairly orange by the time you get to her wedding. It must have been a marvelous milestone when color photography came along. Even though color film would not be available until Eastman Kodak released Kodachrome in 1935, the first color photo was developed in 1861, the same year the American Civil War broke out. To the older listener who now has Paul Simon's song Kodachrome stuck in your head, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. My name is Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. In the first three decades of photography, color images could only be achieved by hand-tinting the prints with watercolors or pastels. Color was an area of fascination for Scottish scientist and poet James Clerk Maxwell, who was also drawn to such lofty scientific pursuits as researching electromagnetism and determining the composition of Saturn's rings. It's widely accepted, and even obvious-seeming today, but the idea that every shade of the rainbow could be created through different combinations of red, green, and blue light was a theory waiting to be proven. By taking a series of black and white photographs through green, blue-violet, and red filters, one could overlay them to create an image featuring the entire color spectrum. The subject of this first photo was a piece of tartan ribbon, possibly selected as much for representing Scotland as demonstrating a successful color process. As was the case with the invention of the motion picture, which happened to settle a bet, Maxwell was not interested in pursuing color photography, only in proving his theory. If your photo album was compiled in the 70s or 80s, there were probably more than a few Polaroid pictures in it. With the ubiquity of digital cameras, it can be easy to take for granted the ability to see your images immediately. The first commercially viable camera that created instant photographs was sold in 1948, all the way back in the Truman era. The process, invented by Polaroid founder Edwin Land, 
used a diffusion transfer to move the dyes from the negative to the positive via a reagent. A negative sheet was exposed inside the camera, then lined up with a positive sheet and squeezed through a set of rollers which spread a reagent between the two layers. After a minute, the back of the camera was opened and the negative peeled away to reveal the print. This first film was black and white, with color following in 1963. The color process involved pulling two tabs from the camera, the second of which pulled the film sandwich through the rollers to develop out of the camera. The instant color process was more complex, requiring a negative that contained three layers of emulsion sensitive to blue, green, and red. Underneath each layer were dye-developing molecules in their complementary colors of yellow, magenta, and cyan. When light struck an emulsion layer, it blocked the complementary dye below. For example, when blue strikes the blue-sensitive emulsion layer, it blocks the yellow dye, but allows magenta and cyan dyes to transfer, which combine to create blue. In 1972, Integral film was developed, which didn't require the user to time the development or peel apart the negative. It integrated all the layers to expose, develop, and fix the photo. Though Polaroid ceased production of instant film in 2008, it's still worth mentioning, despite what Outcast may have led the listener to believe, shaking a Polaroid picture served no purpose, since the developing film was under plastic and not exposed to the air. Selfies are so endemic to our current culture that most of us have forgotten the pleasant awkwardness of asking a passerby to take our picture, or of being that passerby. We'll leave aside the internet hoax that compulsive selfie-taking has been declared a mental illness, perhaps for another false panic installment. You've probably guessed that selfies predate phone cameras, but they go back even farther than this reporter expected. The year was 1939. No, wait, it was 1839. 174 years before the Oxford English Dictionary would add selfie to the lexical canon. The photographic self-portrait was surprisingly common in the very early days of photographic exploration and invention. Like a scientist alone in his lab, it was often more convenient for the experimenting photographer to act as the model as well. Amateur chemist Robert Cornelius of Philadelphia set up his camera behind his family's store and took the photo by removing the lens cap and running into frame, where he sat for a minute before covering up the lens again. He had plenty of time to do this because of the long exposure needed for daguerreotype photography. The daguerreotype, named after its inventor, Louis-Jacques de Daguerre, was the first photographic process available to the public. The process was quite complicated. The photographer, or daguerreotypist, polished a sheet of silver-plated copper until it looked like a mirror and treated it with fumes so it became light-sensitive. Cornelius not only took the first selfie, but the picture widely considered to be the first photographic portrait and the first photograph of a person in America. The first photo containing a person worldwide was taken only the previous year when two people walked into the corner of the frame as Daguerre took a picture of the Boulevard du Temple in Paris. The second biggest boost to the selfie after the camera phone was the selfie stick. These simple arm extensions became so irritatingly common that theme parks have to post signs prohibiting their use on roller coasters. 
While selfie sticks and camera phones are as natural a pair as hammer and nail, by the time the first camera phone launched in 2000, the selfie stick was already 17 years old. Hiroshi Ueda, employed at Minolta Camera in Japan, created an extendable stick with a tripod screw that was designed for use with a new small camera the company had developed. He also added a mirror to the front of the camera so you could see what you would be shooting. Despite not testing well, Japanese women in particular felt uncomfortable taking their own picture, Minolta pressed on. Unfortunately for them and Ueda, who patented the selfie stick in 1983, it didn't sell. In the end, the device was considered Chindogu, a gadget that seems like an ideal solution to a particular problem, but is in fact useless. The patent expired in 2003, and the idea languished until phone cameras had improved in quality and price to make accessories for taking mobile self-portraits desirable. If you had had one of Sharp's JSH-04 phones with the 110,000 pixel camera in 2000, you might have been able to post your selfie on the first social network. Six Degrees, which lasted from 1997 to 2001, allowed users to create profiles, connect with peers, and share pictures. Friendster wouldn't launch until 2002, MySpace in 2003, and Facebook in 2004. Arguably, this list could have extended back to 1988's IRC, Internet Relay Chat, or the late 70s Usenet, or BBS, Bulletin Board System, if we broaden the definition of social network. A special knowing nod goes out to the listener who remembers free nights and weekends on Prodigy. Many of our modern conveniences have been making our lives easier for generations, even centuries. Take the vending machine, for instance. Once the domain of soda and candy bars, these days you can purchase made-to-order hot food, cell phone accessories, short stories to read on the subway, and yes, schoolgirl panties in Japan. Surprisingly, electricity is not a requirement for vending machines. Hero of Alexandria was an inventor, scientist, and mathematician who took a keen interest in mechanics. The vending machine he designed in the first century CE was to dispense holy water in temples so that worshippers could ritually clean themselves when they entered. The devout would put coins in the top of an urn-shaped device and it would dispense a measured amount of holy water for washing. The proper coin was put into a slot, just as with modern machines. The coin hit a pan which was attached to a lever. The lever opened a valve, dispensing the water. Once the coin slid off the now-tilted pan, it would drop, raising the lever and closing the valve. At the end of the day, the machine would be emptied of coins and topped off with holy water. A cup of water on demand was certainly novel, but what about ice? What about ice? In the desert, 1600 years before the first electric ice maker. The yakchal, meaning ice pit, was a type of ancient refrigerator built in the deserts of modern-day Iran, mastered by Persian engineers around 400 BC, though it's possible that people were making them before that. Most yakchals were domed structures with an underground containment area. Water was brought to the yakchal either by transporting ice from nearby mountains or diverting water from an aqueduct. A type of wind-catching mechanism 
diverted the breeze down into the Yakchal. As the air descended, it would cool. Once in the Yakchal, the water would freeze overnight. This process could be expedited by having ice transported from the mountains already present to act as a seed. In addition to making and storing ice, the Yakchal was used to store perishable food. Many Yakchals in Iran, Afghanistan, and other parts of West and Central Asia are still standing, even after thousands of years. At the same time Persians were making and storing ice, to the east in China, people of the Han Dynasty were drilling for and piping natural gas. Deep wells for the extraction of hydrocarbons are hardly the purview of peri-industrial revolution Europe and America. China's technology for well drilling was so advanced that engineers were able to dig down over 800 feet. Derricks, also called heaven carts, were made of bamboo and could stand as tall as 160 feet. The cables, also made from bamboo fiber, were nearly the same tensile strength as modern steel. The drill would be spun by an animal-drawn wheel and the bit raised and lowered by men stepping on a large lever. Different styles of drill bits had been invented to deal with different types of rock and earth. When gas was reached, it would be pumped several meters up before being distributed through miles of pipes for such things as stoves where cast iron evaporation pans boiled brine to extract salt. We know with certainty how these systems work because examples are still in use today, a testament to the reliability and effectiveness of the design. As negative consequences of our reliance on petrochemicals becomes inescapable, some people turn to hybrid and electric cars. This option was available to drivers well before the short-lived, short-range General Motors EV1 from 1996. Consumers could purchase an electric car as far back as the 1880s. While there were battery-powered conveyances as early as 1837, we're going to confine ourselves to people-carrying vehicles with rechargeable batteries, a definition more in keeping with what we think of when we think of electric car. English inventor Thomas Parker, who was also responsible for such innovations as electrifying the London Underground, built the first production electric car in 1884 using his own specially designed high-capacity rechargeable batteries. Prior to this, electric vehicles, mostly two- and three-wheel affairs, were viewed as novelties because they weren't suitable to drive on public streets. Parker is thought to have been motivated in part by concerns about the negative impact smoke and pollution were having in London. For historical context, this is shortly after the life and career of Charles Dickens, from whom our image of brutal and filthy Dickensian London is derived. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The UK and France were the first nations to support the widespread development of electric vehicles, with the United States seeing its first electric production vehicle in 1890. That vehicle was a six-passenger wagon capable of reaching a speed of 14 miles per hour. In London, Walter Bursey designed a fleet of electric cabs in 1897 nicknamed Hummingbirds because of the odd humming noise they made. In the same year in New York City, the Samuels Electric Carriage and Wagon Company began running 12 electric cabs, growing to 62 cabs by the following year. Acceptance of electric cars was initially hampered by a lack of electrical infrastructure, but by 1912 many homes were wired for electricity, enabling a surge in the popularity of the cars. In the United States, at the turn of the last century, 40% of automobiles were powered by steam, 38% by electricity, and only 22% by gasoline. Most early electric vehicles were massive, ornate carriages designed for upper-class customers. They featured luxurious interiors and were replete with expensive materials. For the Prius lover in the audience, the first gasoline-electric hybrid car was released by the Woods Motor Vehicle Company of Chicago in 1911, but it proved a commercial failure as it was too slow for its price and too difficult to service. If Sunday drives aren't your preferred pastime, how about staying in for some video games? People have been able to control moving lights on screens since. The listener may be expecting to hear 1972, when Atari released Pong. While it's true that two lines in a circle helped launch a multi-billion dollar industry of home and arcade entertainment, a game called Tennis for Two had been created in 1958 back when television screens were only about one foot across. Its inventor, a physicist named William Higginbottom, thought that university science fairs were too passive and wanted to create something interactive for attendees. Drawing on his experience with oscilloscopes and cathode ray tubes, Higginbottom spent three weeks cobbling together a system that used an analog vacuum tube computer to manipulate curves on the screen in such a way as to make them resemble a bouncing ball. The game was a side view of a tennis court, with a blurry little dot being lobbed over a net using knobs. The display measured just five inches, but it proved so intriguing that hundreds of people lined up for a chance to try it out. No one knew Tennis for Two would eventually be heralded as the grandfather of all video games. The device was disassembled so the parts could be used for other projects. Neither could Higginbottom have profited from it, because he was an employee of the federal government and didn't own anything he created during working hours. An honorable mention goes to 1936's penny arcade ray o Light, a duck hunting game. While not on a video screen, this game actually used light gun technology. The Seaberg Company originally engineered vacuum tube amplifiers and gearing systems for jukeboxes. 
When the light-sensing vacuum tube was introduced in the early 30s, their design team used it to produce the first light ray game on the market. The game featured a flying duck with a light-sensing tube on its back that would drop when you shot it with the rifle, which produced a beam of light. Many variations were made for shooting miniature raccoons, bears, and even mother-in-laws. Many people who enjoy playing as, watching, or reading about fictional characters also enjoy dressing up as them. Cosplay, the practice of dressing up as characters from fiction, on days other than Halloween, has helped to fuel the expansion of conventions from small hotel meeting room affairs to week-long arena-sized franchised events that draw tens and even hundreds of thousands of people each. This portmanteau of costume and play is thought to have been coined in 1984 by Nobuyuki Takahashi. But that was many years after someone began to share their nerdy enthusiasm through yardage in school. That someone was Myrtle Jones, back in the Flash Gordon Buck Rogers days of 1939. Myrtle, known in sci-fi circles by her nickname Morajo, was a very active member of the sci-fi community, even editing and mimeographing her own fanzine. She designed a futuristic costume based on the costumes in the film Things to Come for herself and her boyfriend Forrest Ackerman to wear to the first World Science Fiction Convention, now known as Worldcon. It must have been fairly unnerving, being the first ever fans to dress in costume. Have you ever been overdressed at a function? That times a hundred. But those first two costumes made quite a splash in the sci-fi community. Before long, Worldcon began hosting annual costume contests, and other conventions would follow suit, turning cosplay into the force it is today. A staple of cosplay, to really complete the look, is costume contacts, or even regular contact lenses to avoid having to wear your glasses while in costume. While many of us get our first pair of contacts in our teens, the contact lens itself is 130 years old. The first contact lenses were invented in 1888 by German ophthalmologist Adolf Fick. Fick's lenses were twice the size of modern lenses, covering the whites or sclera of the wearer's eyes, and were made of glass. Because these scleral lenses severely reduced the oxygen supply to the cornea, users could only wear them for a few hours at a time, which probably explains why only a few hundred people chose them over their old spectacles. In 1936, New York optometrist William Feinblum introduced a scleral lens made of a combination of glass and plastic that were significantly lighter than the older glass-blown contacts. In 1948, California optician Kevin Tuohy introduced the first smaller, all-plastic, corneal contact lens. These early hard lenses were made of a non-porous plastic that was not gas-permeable, but they could move with each blink, so oxygen-carrying tears could get under them to keep the cornea healthy. Perhaps the biggest event in the history of the contact lens was the invention of the first hydrophilic or water-loving soft contact lens, developed by a pair of Czech chemists in 1959. Because of their greater comfort, soft contacts soon became more popular than hard contact lenses, despite the availability of gas-permeable hard contacts that would often provide sharper vision. 
Though cosplay changes the appearance temporarily, it has become commonplace in our world for people to change their physical appearance permanently. A quick Google search of first plastic surgery will bring you images of Walter Yao, who sustained terrible facial injuries, including the loss of his upper and lower eyelids, while manning the guns aboard the HMS Warspite in 1916. In 1917, he was treated by Sir Harold Gillies, the first man to use skin grafts from undamaged areas of the body and the so-called father of plastic surgery. While Dr. Gillies definitely deserves ample credit for the work he did, he should relinquish the patronym to Sushruta of India, who lived during the 6th century BCE and wrote one of the world's earliest works on medicine and surgery. The Sushruta Samhita documented the etiology of more than 1,100 diseases, the use of hundreds of medicinal plants, and instructions for performing scores of surgical procedures, including three types of skin grafts and the reconstruction of the nose. At the time, patients in need of that procedure generally included those who had lost their noses as punishment for theft or adultery. His pioneering procedure for nose reconstruction used full-thickness skin from the forehead above the eyebrow, which would be pivoted down to form, all or in part, a new nose. The flap would already have the nerves and blood supply it would need to heal and function in its new spot. This method was introduced in Europe in the 15th century and, while not perfect, would be the gold standard until World War I. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. In the age of bigger, better, faster, more, it's easy to default to thinking that we invented everything, that the complex things that make up our lives couldn't have existed in a time we view as primitive. But we need to give the minds of our ancestors more credit than we do. Thank you for spending part of your day with me. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.